If you have decided you're going to leave one thing and go to another thing, choose the thing that you're not entirely certain you can do. Don't do the things that you know you can do because you won't be learning. And you won't be that motivated because it might not be that hard. The UK has adopted someone important, someone that has had a massive impact as an entrepreneur, angel investor, and now an educator for the next generation. Sherry Kutu moved here as a youngster, studied, fell in love, and raised a family. But that was alongside starting up Interactive Investor International, called 3i. Is that correct? No, not called 3i. Oh, well, go for it. <laughs> uh, so interactive, so I, 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 or interactive investor. We try not to call it 3i because there was another very large venture capital company called 3i and they actually sued us 10 days before we floated the company. So um, we definitely don't call it 3i. We would never call it that. Well, I'm glad we got this dis- distinction on, <laughs> on audio. Um, okay, well, something easier to uh, to explain. So founders for schools, correct? Yes. We got that one right. Excellent. Yeah. The Scale-Up Institute. Yeah. And also obviously investing in Zoopla, Love Film, sitting on the board of LinkedIn and being a non-exec director of the London Stock Exchange and Raspberry Pi. Ad- advisory board of LinkedIn rather than board board. Advisory board. Good. Well, we're getting all the corrections in, which is important. Um, and I'm right that you are heavily involved in the financial strategy of the University of Cambridge as well. Good. No corrections needed there. Some of some of the research is uh, spot on. Uh, okay, these are just the highlights for the CBE self-confessed techie. Um, your list is long and impressive. And... Basically, Canada's losses are gain, although you must be tempted to just move back to Canada at the moment. It's a very, very interesting uh, dichotomy between our two countries. I love Canada, and I'm absolutely heartbroken with what's going on here with Brexit. And I can't, I would be dishonest to say that I hadn't thought about um, relocating there. Okay, well, we won't press it just now. I definitely don't want to be the person that was responsible for making you uh, consider it even stronger. So straight into some quick fire questions. Uh, Tea or coffee? Coffee. Canada or UK? For what? For a quick fire answer. (laughs) Passport Canada. (laughs) Excellent. Life UK. (laughs) Everything Canada right now, I guess. Mountains, Canada. Um, No, I don't know. Mountains I've climbed Kilimanjaro three times and Rinjani is probably my favorite mountain. Uh, it's in Indonesia and in Lombok. I meant comparing can- Canada and UK mountains. Oh. I thought you were going about to tell me some amazing UK the mountains. The UK doesn't have any proper exactly. mountains. Exactly. But my husband would say there are Munros in Scotland, which there are, but they don't really count as a mountain. They're more small. We'll leave them out. Yeah. Okay. Mountains, S- Canada, definitely, if I have to choose. What's your phone? What have you got? Some sort of iPhone. Some sort of iPhone, okay. With a brown cover to it, which is very nice. Uh, it's a 10, 10X or something like okay. that. Yeah. And finally, winter or summer? I like skiing in winter and I like climbing mountains in the summer. And also, you know, you've got Canada and UK. I'm going to say you sound like a winter person to me. Oh, which do I prefer? Yeah. I feel happier in the summer, I think. I like, I like daylight. You like I like vitamin D. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, right. Well, now that the ice is due to be being broken, hopefully we can uh, delve a little bit deeper with some more meaningful questions. So let's just start with your two major initiatives. So Founders for Schools and obviously the Scale Up Institute. Can you tell us a little bit about them? Which would you rather start with telling us about? I would start with the Scale-Up Institute because the Scale-Up Institute caused me to see how important Founders for Schools was. A few years ago, I was asked to by the government to write a report on how to stimulate economic growth and did 
quite a long study. I sort of resigned from, I took a sabbatical from uh, all of the boards that I was on and went into an academic. It was almost like doing a very shortened PhD and came up with the not only the um, the key reasons that were causing our economic growth to falter, also very simple things that we could do to fix that. And being a woman of action, um, I wanted to come up with action-oriented recommendations that we all could do right away um, without waiting for anybody else to write a policy or do anything else um, that could make an impact. Because I'd just like to pull a lever and have impact. That's easier for me than pull a lever, have lots of other things happen, and then finally something might happen. And I think I thought I was going to write about finance when I was, you know, when I first started investigating what you need to do to unlock economic growth. And actually it was like, oh, well, if it's just about skills, then we know how to, we know many of the tricks that entrepreneurs need in order to get more skills. So let's focus on that. And Well, in terms of developing yourself, surrounding yourself with peers so that you can go through the growth together, that's a pretty easy one to to sort. Um, And then there's common tricks that you can use to sell to big corporates um, and to international companies that help you go from a hundred million value company to a billion value company. Um, So we just wanted to sort of bottle those up and get them into the hands and heads of entrepreneurs so that we could grow the economy without waiting for anybody else who might be distracted with Brexit or other stuff that is outside of our control. I wanted to put the control for our economy back in the hands of the entrepreneurs who are driving the economy. And what was the reception like from government when you were discussing it this way? Probably quite relieved. (laughs) The government was very happy. I mean, they're used to receiving reports that have big price tags attached to them. And this is a... so. We need to use our convening and we need to think about scale-ups and removing the barriers in front of them as opposed to invoke a whole bunch of laws and all sorts of things that take a long time. So I think they were relieved. I think they warmly received it. They have trained a lot of their people and changed many of their programs to be oriented towards growth rather than small companies or large companies. And I think that's been really healthy. You know, what has been the biggest lesson or mistake, I guess, that you might have learned along the way? I'm assuming that might not have all been perfectly smooth sailing. But like I say, that is an assumption. It might well have been. So our educational programs and our outputs are focused on helping each of the ecosystems or cities to create a great place for entrepreneurs who are growing their companies quickly to flourish. In London, for instance, infrastructure features often, but if you're in Birmingham, it doesn't feature as as often. Everywhere in the UK, they have issues with talent. So the tricks around talent is you need to train people to do what they need to do. Um, How do you, you know, what are the tricks used by companies that have managed to scale in order to onboard hundreds of people quickly? Well, there's orientation programs and these sorts of things. The good news is we have probably tripled the growth rate of scale-ups in the UK in the last five years. We released this in November and we've just got new data as well showing that the people understand what you need to do and a much greater proportion of companies than were that were scaling before are still scaling. So we are creating the conditions to allow companies to flourish here better than elsewhere which is super cool. So everybody's cohort is uh, succeeding. What we do is we publish case studies on 
people who do have cohorts. We're tracking 500 initiatives around scale-ups in the UK at the moment and seeing which ones are effective and which ones weren't effective. There weren't any five years ago before we wrote the report. There are now north of 500. They're in every city. There's several of them in every city. And we're monitoring which ones seem to be producing huge numbers of scale-ups. And we're telling their secrets to those who don't yet have as many, as many, you know, the additional growth in, in scale-ups as we would as we would like. But is it something that people, that startup founders apply for, to be part of, or is it just something that's just information out in the ether and, you know, it's, it's publicly available? In order to be a scale-up, you have to sell more stuff to your customers. So we help entrepreneurs sell more stuff to their customers. The best way of being a scale-up is by either selling more stuff, which we measure by an increase in turnover, or by hiring more people, which, uh, again, it depends on the industry. You see in life sciences, you'll see a jump in companies by who they hire, and that is followed by, or should be followed by, a jump in revenues. Um, but in tech, you'll often see a jump in revenues before you'll see a jump in, in headcount. So it kind of depends on what type of industry you're, you're in before you start scaling up. But you can't apply. You have to delight a customer or an investor and either hire people or sell more stuff. And obviously, uh, you know, on the hiring metric, uh, you know, a good place to go for that information is LinkedIn. And you've got Reid Hoffman involved in this program? Yes, absolutely. So Reid Hofton was on our board for the first four years, and he definitely was one of the um, collaborators in, in, in writing the report. After that, he started up his Masters of Scale. Um, also, he's taught at Stanford. He's also, uh, I mean, he's done many, many, many things around entrepreneurship um, and obviously focused on scaling on scaling as well. Um, he's a master, master of scaling and blitz scaling. And his previous two books as well were both about how to, how to scale things rather than um, how to start them. There's kind of a malaise that exists, which many people start things and they don't finish them. And to be successful and to get the economic growth, you need to start something and keep at it and at it and at it and at it. And you need to keep on getting better and you need to delight your customers. And one of the catalysts for writing the report, indeed making the comments that caused the report to get written, was I was in a meeting and I was a bit grumpy because they were talking about the economic impact that they felt would happen from their entrepreneurship policies. And I, I think I said, well, you really need to change your policies if you're going to have any economic impact. Come on. And they went, what? Because they had all thought that their um, entrepreneurship policies, which were about startups, would create their theory of change was you start something and then magically out of a back black box, economic growth was going to happen. And that's not the case. You have to start things, you have to stop things, and you have to double down on the things that are that are working. And that discipline of focusing on the mechanisms of delighting customers year after year after year and what you need to do as a as a business leader to grow yourself so that you can um, hire more people and develop them as they serve serve more, serve more customers was really what we were double downing on double downing on I'm not sure that's grammatically correct but what we, we were we'll, focusing on I, I believe double downing is, uh, is is yeah sure okay we'll go for yeah and for doubling an American, down on no doubling down on and I'm a Canadian uh, yeah. don't you even no, no, vaguely think of me I wasn't I, I haven't made that mistake don't worry but no, I was going to say but for uh, American listeners uh, you know double downing will just sound like Downing Street okay that sounds <laughs> okay. totally legitimate no but it's doubling down on that's that that yes. was the words that should have come out of my mouth so um, sorry about that yeah actually just on 
there. So um, I want to jump straight ahead to uh, your views on work-life balance then. I mean, you've just discussed um, blitz scaling and the attitude towards, you know, going going super fast and making sure that we do reach that end goal, of course. But you've also very publicly discussed, you know, how you are very careful with your own work-life balance and you truly believe in it. How do you think those two things culturally manifest? Do you feel like we're going through a sort of different shift in perspective at the moment in terms of how to manage that? Because, of course, a few years ago, there was the whole just work 24-7, everyone just kill themselves like a Facebook kind of vibe where you're just there forever. Facebook and Google being very famously keeping everyone at the office nonstop. Um, I'm guessing you wouldn't like either of those cultures for yourself personally. I think in terms of sustainability, we want to we want to have that balance. And life is a marathon, not a sprint, I think, for, for all of us. And I think that if you're happy and balanced in your life, you're going to be more effective. And if you just work and work and work and work and work and you don't exercise, and you don't see your friends, then that's not really sustainable. Um, and it's better if you can have that balance. And sometimes it's a bit like a pendulum. Sometimes you can work like a dog and then you swing back and you do family and then you swing back and you work like a dog. Um, probably having less, you know, violent, you know, in the in the swings and the cycles, having less high ups and downs is better for better for all of us. And it's certainly more sustainable. Have you been more reflective on that in like later in life? As in, do you feel like this belief sounds great now? But actually looking back, you didn't do that necessarily. Um, and no, I was pretty ferocious. The, at that point, I didn't have three children and a husband. Um, there was a lot of traveling and I worked every hour that, um, that God gave. And, you know, at points was, you know, kidnapped by my friends for weekends and they gave me some of the, you know, some of the sanity. It was, I'm trying to remember, I've always preserved weekends because I, I, I've needed downtime to focus on focus on other things. And I'm fresher on a Monday if I've had the entire weekend off. Although I now sort of do Sunday nights just to focus on the stuff that I need to do during during the week. Um, but once I got married and had kids, it was important to me that they knew how important they were to me and have seen many people make sacrifices that I didn't didn't want to make. I, I, you know, I wanted to know my kids and I wanted to you know, see my husband and I wanted to sort of enjoy a family life. And that was really important to me which is one of the reasons why after floating uh, and selling Interactive Investor, I became an angel investor for 15 years. It's a lot easier to be an angel investor um, when you control what you do, how you do, and how you do it than if you're working full-time for anyone else. And it's really only now that the kids are older that I'm you know, executive chair of, um, of Founders for Schools and also have a, that portfolio that you spoke about, which is um, sometimes can be quite exhausting, but it's exhilarating at the same time. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, 
getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secret leaders. That's vanta.com slash secret leaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. As an angel investor, when you were spending time with, you know, young companies like, you know, Zoopla or Love Film, etc., did you at that point try and offer some insights to them about what kind of pace to go at? Like whether that was extremely fast, whether that wasn't like, what kind of angel investor were you like, on reflection? Well, I'm still an angel investor, so um, I wouldn't use the past tense. But sorry, I, I actually meant like back then when you were a full-time professional angel investor for 15 years, which I suppose is different now because, um, you know, you're one human being and you have a lot of things going on. But a full-time angel investor, I imagine, you know, well, sounds like you take everything very seriously, but uh, uh, with a 15-year period and some real amazing companies to have spotted so early, I'm guessing you had a specific behavior and attitude to spend that period of your life. I like patterns and I like trends and means that product strategy and reading the market. Um, I often refer to it as skating where the puck is going to be as opposed to where it is. It's a Canadian analogy that I yeah. use occasionally. The old Wayne Gretzky, uh, other, other one of uh, missing uh, all the shots you don't take. Yes, exactly. Um, so I think that I can sometimes help with that. When I think of other things, I think understanding your own capacity. So sitting down with you know, with, with the entrepreneurs, sometimes with their senior leadership team and helping them see things, even just talk to somebody who's been through it before, sometimes you don't see things. And my angel investors were absolutely critical for me to shine a light down a path and saying, it's not working the way that I thought it would. I can't, you know, can you just help me sort of be clear eyed about what's the solution to this problem that's, you know, keeping me awake at night or that I don't seem to be able to solve. And um, I think I really just try to troubleshoot with with the entrepreneurs and whatever issues they happen to be having, whatever, whatever that is, um, try to help them. Sometimes it's with financing stuff. I've, you know, I made more than 70 investments um, and, you know, I've done a lot of, looked at a lot of term sheets and, you know, fallen down some potholes in, in these things. So people will all often come to me and say, oh, we got this term sheet and there's these couple clauses and I just can't think about them. And my lawyer is saying it's okay, but I have a bad feeling about it. What do you think? I can go look at a clause and it doesn't take me very long to sort of say, 
you know, run <laughs> or, oh, that's fine. Um, and that can often help people just sort of, you know, know that they don't have to worry about it or, or other things. I like industries restructuring and thinking about how industries restructure. Um, the other thing that is probably a sort of signature is collaborations and strategic alliances, getting to yes with other companies so that you can both achieve something that neither can alone is something I love doing and have helped lots of people do. Can you recall one specific moment from your angel investing career that you'd say was your proudest, whether that was helping someone solve a problem, whether that was a specific exit, spotting someone incredibly early before anyone else, anything like that? Well, I'm sure all of the above, but putting you on the spot to remember one of them. Getting those neurons uh, firing up. Clearly didn't have the right breakfast. (laughs) Helping people focus on understanding customer segments and thinking, thinking hard about these things. Avoiding going into a country when you don't have a, ch- a chance of winning there. Um, and that all has to do with reading the incumbents um, and not spreading yourself too thin. I think helping people who are often very enthusiastic often try to do too many things. And and I think sitting down and sort of just asking questions almost in a Socratic method um, without telling people what to do. I think what I've learned as an angel investor is not to tell people what to do, but to um, just ask some questions that they might have been wondering about and um, help them answer the questions so that they have understood what they need to do because otherwise you're going around chasing your tail. And I think helping people stop chasing their tail is probably the proudest moment. There's, I don't know, I don't know, proudest moment. It's very hard. There's lots, lots of things. But getting, getting the entrepreneur to yes in some respects. Getting the entrepreneur to see what the right pathway is for them I resented when I was an entrepreneur people, sometimes I resented people telling me what to do. Um, and I think I think it's impossible to, to understand. An entrepreneur is taking a lot of information on a lot of different, from a lot of different inputs. And they're really the ones that will have the answer to what yes looks like. Sometimes it's hard to read a signal. But I think helping them interpret some of the signals is the way that I approach it and the way I preferred to approach it when I was a first, you know, first couple of times that I was that I was doing it. Okay, so I know that I I promised that we would go straight into Founders of Schools and I've taken on a massive diversion, but I'd love to hear more about it. So what was your inspiration for starting Founders for Schools? Uh, the inspiration came out of my angel investing and came out of the the scale up um, the scale up work that I'd been doing. The number one problem that all of my investments had, and that I'd also had um, when I was, you know, trying to hire people myself, was getting people with the right skill set. Um, it was also prompted by working with Raspberry Pi, where we had seen a rapid, you know, dilution of applicants who who had the right skills to do this. So you try to hire people, and they come out of the schools or the universities and they don't have the right skills. And when you're growing quickly, you really need people to jump in and run very hard, very fast and to do the right things and to understand what they need to do. And if there's 60, 90 day lag between when they come in before they're capable of helping you do what you need to do, then you can fall over more quickly. So it's very risky if you're a scale up to not have, it's riskier if you're a scale up than if you're a, let's say a big shrinking company where, um, you know, big shrinking companies or big static companies, you can afford the time to take months to, you know, induct them and get them through an orientation. But by the time you've gotten somebody to work for you to scale up, you know, you've got piles of customer orders and you really just 
need to, you know, you need help. You need someone to work in quickly. Yeah. And you're focused on customer delight, clearly. I'm like, focused on customer delight and focusing on customer delight means you really need people to do things like yesterday. Yeah. So the, um, the pain was one that I had absolutely felt at a subatomic level as an entrepreneur and as a, you know, a less painful as an investor, but still, you know, feeling the pain. It's like seeing how hard it was to get people. And then when you were so happy that you'd gotten them and you thought, oh, they don't know how to do what I need them to do. Oh, I have to help them figure this out. And that, that just takes time. And um, Founders for Schools was seeing that by then my kids were teenagers and I saw that at the school level, the guidance that they were getting in the schools was to work for the big shrinking companies where I knew everybody was miserable. And the really exciting companies, the you know, startup and scale-ups, they were not getting any look in or any attentions like you should be a doctor or you should be a lawyer or you should go work for the government or you should be a teacher, but not you should go work for, you know, Raspberry Pi or Calm or, you know, any of the, you know, fantastic, you know, Uber or, you know, Just Eat, you know, shouldn't work for those. They'd never heard of those. But I know that they are 100% of the net new jobs that there are. So you've got, well, there's these really interesting companies doing really interesting stuff where if you went to work there, you'd be like, you know, yes, you'd be busy and you'd be a little bit stressed, but you'd be actually creating the world we wanted to live in. Or you could go work for a big, you know, design dinosaur that was, a, you, know, you know, on its way to extinction. And the schools seemed to be talking about these big ones because they'd heard about them. And the little ones who didn't have time to go market themselves to schools or teachers or anything else weren't getting weren't getting a look in, and that made me grumpy. It seemed wrong. It was like, well, what? How can we not mention these this vibrant you know pathway, which everybody should be really excited about? We should give them hope. Um, they're the more interesting jobs, and why aren't we telling people about that? And I spoke to a bunch of teachers, and they weren't aware of the vibrant part of the economy and they weren't aware of how to find them and their social circles or and the parents at the at the schools didn't allow them insights to that either because you know the tech economy is kind of a not like a bubble but it's um it, you know well, it's not, you're not either, a bubble yeah it's not not a bubble but you know sometimes the, they, they didn't overlap and it seemed well you've got people who need the skills and all and they were in school so they understand the issue and when they were in school they often felt like misfits because they were interested in things that the teachers didn't seem to be interested in they some subjects they couldn't see why they would want to do that subject because it wasn't you know it, it didn't excite them and i think well if they can just go in and talk about what they do then that enthusiasm and and excitement will rub off and at least it will be different than this is what an accountant does this is what a lawyer does this is, you know, or, 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 or a doctor, which is, there was plenty of that, but they were missing the key part. And because I, at that point, had started up my own company, which was a double, my first company was a double-sided marketplace. The second company, Interactive Investor, double-sided marketplace, LinkedIn, double-sided marketplace, Zoopla, double-sided marketplace, LoveFilm, double-sided marketplace. I was used to getting people who wanted things to the people that they wanted, and it's just like, well, the employers want the students and the students want the employers. Why don't we just make it easier for them to see each other? And with LinkedIn, you had 70 to 80 percent of business leaders were, you know, findable. Um, I worked with their developer, you know, their developers. So I knew that they had programs that allowed you to make visible some of the, you know, some of the people that were there. And, this, and you know, they they know how important it is to get talent. So um, it's a long answer to there was a problem. 
Nobody seemed to be fixing it. It was extremely fixable. So I sort of got together a bunch of, asked a bunch of people and said, am I really seeing this? Does it exist? Is this really a problem? I think it's a problem. And I also think that this is a possible solution. And everybody said, yeah, that's a total, yeah, yeah, but probably be very difficult. But yeah, that should, you know, yes. So we did a prototype. It worked. We then scaled up the prototype. It's working. We've just passed helping 250,000 kids. Um, On average, we've introduced them to three founders each. So beginning of January, we passed 250,000 young people. This What's week, the range we, of a young person in this scenario? The age... 14 any, to 18 or...? It, the, the usage ranges between 6 and 18, um, but the majority is 11 to 14, and we target that. We don't stop teachers of primary school students from using our services because that would seem mean and churlish. And actually, if the, if the child's 6 and they meet an entrepreneur, they, you know, that's probably a good thing. And if the entrepreneur is willing to talk to a 6-year-old... Why would one say no? But the we don't really do marketing. It's all word of mouth. But um, we're happiest when it's an 11 to 14-year-old because this is before they're doing their GCSE and their A-levels. And we're really worried about children choosing the subjects that don't lead to the ability to work in a startup or a scale-up. So some of the foundational things, the, you know, maths or technology, you know, math, mathematics is a foundational subject, really, really important. Um, physics, pretty important for solving the world's biggest problems. So if you want to solve one of the world's biggest problems, understanding physics is probably pretty important. Um, but if you're, if you can't understand why you might want to do that, then you might not choose that subject. But if you met someone who had a passion for physics and says, hey, you know, I get to do this really cool stuff all day long, um, you're more inclined to do that. Um, one of the most powerful questions you really uh, can ask a child is what you want to be when you grow up. Have you done any tracking of that to see, you know, how those answers, or if not, if you so fascinating, you know, how those answers change before and after the, you know, coming into contact with entrepreneurs? Because yeah. I suffered from that myself. And I'm sure, like you've just said, like most people really do this. You know, I ended up studying English and art history and everyone's like, why? I'm like, I had no idea what I wanted to do. So that just gave me more time to figure it out. Like that's, sadly, I just had no idea. And my father ran a business. I didn't know I wanted to be an entrepreneur. So even a family of entrepreneurs in my business, I didn't even know that was what I wanted to do at that point. Yep. So there are many people that have studied trends in what kids want to do when they grow up. And there's still absolutely pointing not at the jobs where that will still exist when they when they finish school. So it's quite disheartening to see that on average, when you're surveying kids, what do you want to do when you grow up? There's they're still answering jobs that won't be there. Like it's very acute and it's getting worse. What we hear from the teachers is that there's there's a 24% want to study STEM subjects. So and 92% of the vacancies are in STEM. So what we hear from the teachers is there's a jump um, in the number of students that choose a STEM subject after compared to others. So you have, and this is very consistent over the last six years. So it triples the percentage of children who choose a different subject, just meeting an entrepreneur who can express, you know, why they had a passion for something, but it, and it, it changes the subject. There's academic research, but we haven't done this research. There's academic research showing that teachers believe that attainment is boosted most by a work experience placement than 
anything else. There's hundreds of interventions that go on to try to boost student attainment. And the number one, and there's consensus around this, the number one is work experience. Um, So give someone work experience tomorrow. And I guess part of that is that children at the moment may not believe in themselves. And if you give them a project outside of the classroom, they can learn that they can actually do something. And that boosts their own thoughts about what they can do, um, and they do more. It's quite, I mean, the research is really, is really, really interesting. Coming back to a reflective part of your life, um, and obviously you get the benefit of seeing all the impact uh, that you're having on on people over an age period. I guess you didn't have any of this because none of us did. It's why you've looked to solve it. What are the things you wish that you, you'd have known when you were growing up Um, What were the sort of, it's an interesting one, but I guess, you know, insecurities or uh, challenges um, that helped shape you? Because you're obviously a very accomplished and and, uh, successful lady. So it's interesting because some of those insecurities and learnings about yourself in that period would have actually helped to your benefit in your case. I wish I had understood how important um, working in diverse teams was. Um, I think I've learned that. Um, If I think about my first couple of companies, I might have hired a lot of people who were more like me. And I think that success really comes from getting a diversity of views and mindsets around the table. And I used to avoid people who had um, mindsets that weren't quite the same as mine. And it's dangerous to surround yourself with people who think in the same in the same way. And if I can think of my the biggest bloopers um, and most painful lessons, it's when you really were almost in an eco chamber and you turned off your need or your desire to listen to people who had dissenting voices. And people who have dissenting voices are really important to listen to. And by listening to them and accommodating them, you de-risk, um, well, you, I'm not saying you guarantee success, but you de-risk a catastrophic failure because you made an assumption that was wrong. You've mentioned really hard lessons. Can you share one or two of those really hard lessons? Um, you also said if anyone's listening, we hope there's thousands of people listening to your fantastic stories. So a lot of impact to be made from sharing, you know, some hard lessons that you've you've reflected on. You wish you'd done something differently. I have accidentally ran out of cash before. Um, so not keeping my eye on cash flow is... That's an economist saying that. Yeah, yeah. And I definitely should have known better. So don't run out of cash. So I think keeping your eye on that is really important. Um, and, you know, again, if you're focused on a goal and all you're looking at is engagement, 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 if it's fast growing, it's pretty easy to run out of cash. You can make some little assumptions and, you know, before you know it, you're actually really, you know, you're really in trouble. So I think doing that has surprised me and been very painful on the occasions, um, not just one, that I've done that. So I think that that's really annoying. And I think... Focusing on the culture or occasionally not focusing on the culture and what's important to nurture a culture in a fast-growing company um, has also been really very painful. Um, When you're growing quickly, you're hiring people who have different assumptions about how things are run. Um, And I have forgotten on occasion that every time you hire someone, they've got different assumptions and they bring a different culture. And if you don't let it be known what 
the culture is of your organization as the founder is, then it can get diluted every time someone jo joins. And then before you know it, you don't feel like it's yours. And that's, you know, for all the blood, sweat and tears that you might have put in and all of the lessons that you've had that caused you to want to have that culture, that's too easy a trap to fall into. And it's not that easy to avoid because if you're very, very busy, it's very hard to think about what people do they know and, can, and you can't without spending time with people see that they really didn't understand or that their, their underlying assumptions are, are different. So that takes time. And it's difficult to find the time to do that when you don't have a lot of time. But those are both painful lessons that I have learned. And culture is critical and cash is... So two Cs, culture and cash. And culture comes from the word cult, of course. So, you know, being a cult leader and some of the best companies with the best cultures do genuinely feel like cults quite often, which is an interesting um, fact. Culture eats strategy for breakfast. What do you think about that? <laughs> it's absolutely true. Yeah? Yeah. Okay, because I mean, there's definitely guests on the show that would be like, absolutely not. <laughs> and strategy is key. Well, I think both are, both yeah, are really course. important. But if you have to but prioritize. If, you've got, if, if I had to prioritize, it would be a culture and team, a team that is focused around um, delivering. Execution eats, you know, I think culture gives the ability to execute on a strategy. Now, executing on a crap strategy doesn't help you, but executing on a good strategy is really helpful. But if you have a great strategy and you don't have a team that can execute because their culture is all over the place um, and they don't agree on what needs to be done, then you don't go anywhere. Mm. And, and it's not a nice place to, to work in. And you want to have a nice place to, you want to have a place to go to where you feel happy and that you're flourishing. Um, and culture if it's out of sync, makes for, you know, dissatisfaction and people who would rather, you know, if you're going to spend that much time at work, any, any amount of time at work, you might as well feel that it's a place that feels comfortable for you. You talked earlier about, um, you know, the weekends, your weekend time. Yeah. Do you meditate? Do you do yoga? Like, what are your what are your typical practices? Have they changed over the years? Were you just, you know, a nutcase that did just worked twenty five years ago, and now you realise that maybe some yoga is probably a wise idea? Or I'm not very good at yoga. I'm probably better at Pilates, and I swim. Swim. I uh, I love swimming. Uh, it's the time. You know, it's probably where I meditate. Um, I'm a long distance swimmer, and I need that. It's a you know, it's a repetitive behaviour. I work out things in my mind, and I, th I think the the that keeps me pretty sane. I try to I, you know try to walk rather than take the tube. I don't really love the tube. I try to walk, try to build that in, like cycling. And I I like I like sort of walking in mountains and stuff. But the thing that I you know I need Pilates because um, that's good. But the swimming is what gives that um, the calm. I'm terribly uncoordinated. I'm not good at yoga. Um. <laughs> well, the good news is I think Pilates is even more difficult. So, you know, you've just, uh, you've just trumped that anyway. <laughs> well, excellent. Okay. So final couple of questions. What is the best advice anyone's ever given to you? The best advice that anybody has ever given to me was... Or the was... easiest one you remember. <laughs> oh, no, no. I, I know the best advice that somebody's given okay, me. good. It was when I was at university and they were saying, at any time you'll be thinking that there's... 10 other things that you could do and you'll be just that you'll be weighing up should I be doing what I'm doing or should I be doing should I be moving on to the next thing and if you have decided you're going to leave one thing and start up you know do go to another thing whatever that might be do yourself a favor and choose the thing that you're not entirely certain you can do 
don't do the things that you know you can do with your eyes closed because you won't be learning. And you won't be that motivated because it might not be that hard. So if you're, I mean, it's really is part of philosophy of lifelong learning. Um, if you're sure you can do it, then you're just going to cruise and it won't be as interesting to you. And if it's not as interesting to you, it won't be as fulfilling to you. And I could only wish upon everybody to do what they find really, you know, a huge curiosity about and something they really want to figure out. Um, if you can do that, then you actually won't work at all. I just have this wonderful life of figuring out puzzles that need to be figured out. Sometimes I help other people figure out puzzles, um, but hard puzzles are, are interesting and they cause you to be engaged. And that was very good advice. So whenever I've been thinking about, you know, do I stay with this thing or do I stay, you know, or if I'm, you know, investing, you know, do I invest in something that I'm certain will work or do I invest in something as a problem trying to solve? Completely agree. What What do you advise for female entrepreneurs to uh, get going and sort of how to build their confidence for their journeys? Do you feel, you know, you've obviously been doing both entrepreneurship and investing for a period of time now. Do you think it's getting better? So I think finding other women who have started up businesses is nowhere near as hard as it was when I started starting them up 20 years ago. So look and find role models. I think role models and peers are are really important. Um, they help you understand that that is a pathway that you could go down. I remember thinking at some point, well, maybe I can't be an entrepreneur because all entrepreneurs don't have kids and I want to have kids so I can't be an entrepreneur. And then and then I met Steve Shirley and understood that, well, you actually can't. Oh, well, if you're in tech, you can actually have a whole bunch of kids and be an entrepreneur and that's good. Um, and I didn't and change know your that name before. in order to do it. And Well, she, you don't have to change your name no. any longer no. in order to do it. Um, but I think look around you, there are really inspiring women who have done it. And I think going back to it, solve a problem you want to solve. What I love about backing female entrepreneurs is some of the problems they want to solve, it wouldn't occur to a gentleman to solve. And there are some issues that predominantly affect women. So go solve those issues because you know they haven't been solved yet and they, they need to be solved. And there's a 52% of the population that will want whatever it is that you're doing if you get it right. And final question, what do you look for in entrepreneurs again to invest in? Do they want to solve a problem that they care about? Is that the number one thing? That they, yeah, um, that they have a reason for wanting to solve the problem is the number one. Because if you're going to not just start something and then move on to something else, you have to really want to solve that problem. Um, so it's not that there's a problem we're solving, it's that they have a real reason for wanting to solve that problem. That will keep them going in the in the dark days when you're having bad days. And you have bad days when you're um, when you're starting out. And even if you've been going for a long time, you have dark days. So you have to want the thing to come about. And the other is that it's a problem we're solving because if it's a problem we're solving, it will be very easy to get the talent that you need. And it will be very easy to... Um, persuade others to buy your stuff because they also they also need it but it's you can get the talent if you're solving a problem that's worth solving let's say they tick boxes one and two but they have a horrific ego um to go with it does that actually matter or is the fact they're trying to solve a really hard problem like tantamount to the success okay so there's three things is <laughs> that they want to solve the problem they've got a reason to solve it it's not just i can make a quick flip you know there's this problem i can solve it um it's a they want to solve it because if it takes longer then they'll have to have that tenacity and resiliency the third is, and this is what i look at look for in the in the due diligence that i do 
is can they work with a team? Because you can't achieve thing as, things as a single entrepreneur. And when I have my worst failures as an investor come from having invested in a hugely talented salesperson who can persuade you to do almost anything, but what they haven't been able to do is attract and retain uh, a team. And having constant churn on a team will kill anything. So it's all, all those three things. But you know the answer already when you ask me. And what's the worst habit a founder might have that would basically you'd advise against? I love all founders. I don't know if there are bad habits. Okay, fantastic answers. Thank you so much for your time, Sherry. Thank you. Brilliant. Next week on Secret Leaders. Imagine if a million women could raise a billion dollars to leave as a legacy so that 10,000 female entrepreneurs would be funded every year forever. And if the person goes, that sounds amazing, then I'm like, great, join us. That was Vicky Saunders, the founder of SheEO. She's on a mission to empower and create more female CEOs with an innovative funding model that flips traditional business financing on its head whilst creating a more prosperous fund, return to investors, and of course, more female CEOs in the world building value. It's a hugely inspiring and fascinating conversation, one which I hope you enjoy. So tune in next week or you'll miss out. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. We hope you enjoyed this episode. It was brought to you by your host. That's me, Dan Murray-Serta, producer, Rich Martell, edited by Harry Morton of Lower Street Media. And if you've heard this, it'll probably have something to do with Jennifer Osman in Canada. You'll also notice throughout this series, we've got some beautiful illustrations made for every episode. And that's all thanks to Christina Naru of smartupvisuals.com. You can check out show notes, transcripts, and our upcoming Secret Leaders live events on secretleaders.com. If you haven't yet, hit subscribe on whatever media player you use. Just follow us at Secret Leaders on Instagram or at Secret Leaders One on Twitter. And tell just one friend about how freaking awesome this episode is. If you want to go the extra mile, I'm at Dan Murray Serta on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And we'd love to see you take some screenshots of the episode you're listening to and share it across your social media. It'll bring a tear to our eye and joy to our hearts. See you next week. Tune in or you'll miss out.